Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm Nikki and it's my absolute pleasure and privilege to introduce you to the robotics and AI community in Australia. Today, I have a very special guest, Alan Duffy, is Professor of Astrophysics at Swinburne. Uh, he's the Director of Space Technology and Industry Institute. He's a CEO and founder of MDetect. Alan, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Um, I was just, uh, for our listeners, I was just telling Alan, I'm, I'm slightly in awe of him today. So if I fumble, um, he said he'll be very kind and, and help me along the way. So <laughs> hopefully none of that is going to happen. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm the one who who's uh, at, at risk of fumbling here. So no. you know, if, the, if you can be kind uh, to me, that'd be great. All right, we'll be kind to each other. So going forward, <laughs> Alan, you've got a PhD in astronomy from the University of Manchester. You must be in a very select group of people who have that qualification. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up in Australia. Okay, so yes, I, I am very fortunate to have uh, been supported, uh, funded indeed, to undertake uh, four years uh, to, well, think big and think as big as, as is humanly possible in this regard. My, my thesis was on the large scale structure of the universe. So I wanted to know how the galaxies we see around us formed and indeed they form within large accumulations of an otherwise unknown still unknown type of material called dark matter and these vast clouds of dark matter bind the galaxies together indeed including our own milky way and but for me it all began uh, many years earlier in uh, uh, northern ireland growing up there the dark skies uh, is very much um uh, undeveloped, unspoiled uh, in, in most of, of uh, the uh, countryside there. And I would be driving between villages, you know, my face pressed up against the glass as the, you know, some of my earliest memories, just looking at the stars and being curious about the stars, but also uh, about the regions without the stars, right? There were, there were these black regions. I mean, is it, is it dark because there's nothing there? Uh, there's no stars. Is it dark because there's stars but something's blocking the light or is it is it dark be because there is something there but we just can't see it and it, well it turns out it's all three actually uh but for me i never realized that there was a career in astrophysics until i read uh stephen hawking's brief history of time he spoke about the fact that there was such a job and that was a revelation to me that someone uh, would pay you to sit and think about huge weighty concepts black holes dark matter uh that you could have a career in it and I think that for many of us in in finding our, our passion in, in life, uh, it can be a formative moment, but be it robotics or, or cosmology, the idea that you can be supported in pursuing a passion is such a profound and wonderful and inspiring moment. It's, it's also the reason that I go out and do so many school talks as well, just to ensure that I've made sure that everyone who does want to follow a passion is aware that there's a career out there for it. Uh, and I think uh, it, it's one of the most profoundly changing and and inspiring feats that you can have is to to just find out that there is such a thing as a career in that field of research that you would like to to follow. 
Listen, you're very lucky. I mean, if as a youngster that you've already identified, I spoke to a, a young lady yesterday who's busy with her masters at mechatronics, and she said to me, in year nine, she already established this is what she was going to do. And I said to her, well, you're so lucky because, I mean, I know people even my age that are going, well, when I grow up, this is what I'd like yeah. to do. You know, like I, we it's as though you found well you found your reason for getting up in the morning and that shapes your whole life it makes it so worthwhile it does it 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 really helps some of the you know the existential questions and and quandaries uh not not to the exclusion by the way of of other things i've i've been deeply uh, interested curious about any number of fields of research of areas of science and the world around me more generally and uh, sure, we'll get to even even um, you know being quite fascinated by uh, uh, governance models or structures and and you know taxation considerations and things. You know, I'm just generally inherently quite a curious person. But I think that having that, it was of such a relief to know that there was a role out there that was something I could aspire to. I didn't know that I could get ultimately a, a job, much less a, ultimately a professorship in, in that field. But to to even know there was a target out there to aim for, yeah, that, that matters. It was a big, um, it was a relief actually in retrospect, I think, to have that target. And do you come from an academic family that have got these, you know, is this normal in your family? No, absolutely not. Uh, so my mum, um, uh, uh, ultimately did end up as a professor in in uh, the business school in, in Scotland. But she, uh, at the time I was in school, she left school early. Uh, she had gone back to get her uh, uh, final uh, years of schooling and then ultimately enroll as a mature student um, at university. And I recall going to school and getting the school bus and getting off at the stop that she was at getting her <laughs> education and then she would we would go home together so that was uh that was quite something so uh, you know incredible pride uh, with her to go back uh, uh to to school and and obviously to university and then still make professor in such a short period um so obviously you know get get the brains from 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 mum and um my dad is 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 incredibly smart as well but again not overly formally educated so no it was not apparent that that was a, a path and um, and I actually think there's an inequity when we look to our schooling and we ask why certain students pick certain topics, engineering in particular, mechatronics, as you mentioned earlier, but, but more generally. And I think being aware of someone in the family or family friends who's followed that path can be revelatory, can be so helpful to know that such a thing exists. And for me, I had to find it in Stephen Hawking's book uh, and, and for others I think having perhaps a public talk or or a school visit can be that that moment that reveals to them, oh, there's there's a path out there, and I, I might be able to follow that. You know, you, it, it, I often think that a lot of things that happen to us are pure chance in our in our life. That you know, you picked up a book and off you went on that. It's a bit like the movie Sliding Doors. You go through this and that. But um, I've got two kids and um, my youngest is doing his PhD. So thank you for the brains coming from the mother. I like that. I'll let him know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not in this case. But, you know, I think we, we underestimate how important every interaction and everything in our life is because everything is actually an opportunity for you to go, well, 
if I look at it with all seriousness and, um, you know, I reflect back on my life and I think, oh, I didn't take that seriously enough. You know, like I, I missed opportunities that I didn't even know were opportunities just because my brain wasn't wired that way. Yeah, look, and you can uh, you can see it as a missed opportunity. You can also just reflect that that, you, you know, the time wasn't right for you for that opportunity as well, as, as you as you pointed out. I mean, I, I've certainly had instances where um, I uh, I would yeah never i try well i try not to feel that i've missed opportunities i'm trying to be quite quite mindful that um you know i'm happy where i am in my development i've i've been able to invest in in my own learnings and my own uh, skills and, and just hands-on experiences uh, with with the founding of the companies you mentioned so you know the, but these have all come at a cost of an opportunity cost for something else right so you could see it that way and oh, i've missed an opportunity there's you know but i have to reflect on the fact that i'm pretty happy with where i've ended up and and perhaps that means that you know maybe there was a um there's a universe a multiverse uh if you will in which i have a different career and it's all gone even better somehow. And I took up an opportunity that I otherwise missed, but uh, I think it's, I think I've been pretty lucky and I'm going to, I'm going to absolutely own the, the privilege on this one that, you know, the fact that uh, I was able to come to Australia and uh, uh, achieve the success uh, that I have here in all, in all modesty, but I, I, you know, I have to recognize that that's been an easier path for me as an English speaker, probably it's also been easier as a straight white male as well. Uh, I think these are, these are facts. Uh, I think it's, it's indisputable that it's an easier path. And in particular, when you come to a new country, um, uh, the square kilometer was getting built. So the largest telescope in the world, it's, it's finally construction is, is underway. Um, but the prototype was getting built and uh, just over a decade ago, known as ASCAP. So astronomers were being pulled in from all over the world. I just happened to be the right right person, right time, right place. I applied for over 40 roles, by the way, and I got nothing for the rest. So it was it was not through lack of trying, but I had this opportunity then to come to Perth and it was a, uh, you know, gosh, it was just a dream role. Um, but then the ability to to network and to take on the other other opportunities that came my way, uh, I have to acknowledge that, you know, that that privilege may well have, have um, had a, had a role uh, to play in that, and I think that if, if if I can do anything in my career, is it is to ensure that others seek uh, who to ensure that others who seek this opportunity are provided it, uh, and in particular, I've I've very proud of my uh, students that I've been able to support in their journeys who've been very successful, and they've all had uh, quite diverse uh, backgrounds and and um, uh, uh, and diversity of um, neurodiversity as well as other forms of diversity, and it's just been quite quite wonderful to be able to see them flourish uh, in the uh, the sector. Uh, and sometimes I think you don't recognize your own well, just how good you've had it until you've had to try to support someone else. 
Yeah, there, there is. But I think um, just listening to you, think I think you've got a certain amount of really good karma about you. So you believe in doing, paying it forward. And these things come back to you in um, unexpected ways is my, has been my experience in life. So um, I think we're exceptionally fortunate that you came to Perth and out of the uh, the 40 roles you didn't get, you came here. So we can, we're just lucky. I'm assuming you, um, you're a resident now in Australia. You're not going back to Northern Ireland at any just besides for a little visit, maybe. Yeah, no, no, I have to say within, within the first year, I had to call my mum who had <laughs> been convinced that I would not be um, coming back. Uh, and I was, I was always of the opinion, no, 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 absolutely. You know, I'll, I'll come back to Northern Ireland. And then sure enough, within the first year, I had to tell her, no, no, I'm afraid what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 you were right, mother, as you, you normally right, yeah. are. It's a great country. Yeah, I, I have to stay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. So tell me about the company, uh, you see, I'm founder of MDetect. I actually have to, I actually Googled it. So the, is it a Muon? Have I pronounced that Muon, right? Muon, Muon. Yep. yes. So tell us about it. What does your company do? All right. So this is, this, this came out of some uh, uh, research uh, of, of myself and one of my co-founders who was then doing her PhD at the time, Shanti Krishnan, now Dr. Shanti Krishnan. Uh, but the, the, uh, the company very simply is, uh, to use naturally occurring particles from space, known as muons, uh, to take X-ray-like scans through solid rock uh, in a way that really no other technique can. Uh, these particles are highly penetrating. Uh, they can travel through hundreds of meters of, of rock uh, before finally stopping and are preferentially stopped by denser rocks. So in other words, you get an X-ray-like scan where the bone, for example, of X-rays cast that shadow. Now we have you know, a gold or iron ore body or something doing the same. And if you place enough of our small detectors around the area of interest, then you get not an X-ray scan, but a CAT scan. So you get to see the 3D density structure. So this is some work uh, that was came out of really quite fundamental research. We were uh, uh, continue to be involved in a dark matter uh, experimentation. So trying to detect the dark matter at a deep underground uh, mine. We've gone a kilometer underground to uh, get away from these naturally occurring particles, but so powerful, so penetrating are they, they still can hit the detector and, and blind us essentially to the, um, to the dark matter uh, that might occasionally collide with that detector. So we had to come up with a way to, well, veto or filter out those, those muons um, and came up with a very uh, powerful but very cheap uh, kind of muon detector. And that uh, was essentially used as a way to remove that signal from the dark matter search. But one man's trash is another man's treasure. And it is, in fact, itself an incredibly powerful way to scan that surrounding uh, rock and try to get an insight as to its density. Uh, so after a few years of, of advancing that technology further, we uh, ultimately spun it out uh, with the support of Swinburne University of Technology. And we've uh, were successful earlier in the year with a uh, sorry just just last year with a uh, a large federal uh, grant to further commercialize and uh, we seek to continue to grow uh, that company we'll be uh, later in may deploying to uh, oz minerals our partner on that that grant to try to take some scans of uh, tailing storage facility walls these are these vast structures kilometers across that all the waste uh, byproducts from the mining sector get stored in and uh, they're quite large and quite difficult to monitor. Uh, and it's certainly critical that you do as, because of the large volume of, of material that these walls uh, um, hold up. 
So thankfully, Australia has a very high um, environmental standards and safety and regulation uh, on these these facilities. So we'll be able to, we hope, support the sector to do that critical monitoring more effectively and more cheaply using these naturally occurring particles of space muons. So in terms of um, companies across the world, like, again, this would be a niche. Like, I don't see a company like this being all over. How many, how many companies in the world are there doing this work? Yeah, you're right. There, there's not many. Uh, there's only this, I mean, a, a handful uh, that we've been able to determine. And that's because of this strange path by which I guess you come to that realization of, of this technology. So you, you need to be aware of um, uh, what is called nuclear physics, although there's nothing nuclear about this is just particles from space but you know high energy physics you have to know your detectors you have to know in particular now image processing and software reconstruction so ai it is a wonderful confluence of of different backgrounds and it just so happened that within the team we had them all uh, and we were able to recognize that we could do something quite innovative with this um, synthesis of our different experiences and backgrounds but again that's uh, it is quite a, it's quite an old idea. In fact, it was in Australia, uh, this, uh, in, in the um, Snowy Mountains, that the muons as a tool to scan rocks was first uh, explored. And I think this is back in the 60s, maybe. But the technology has come a long way. And, and in particular, the technology we use owes a lot to the uh, microelectronics revolution and it's really about can you deploy multiple cheaper sensors and use AI to reconstruct the image in a much more profound and powerful way than the uh, more traditional larger single detectors uh, could of old and it's uh, well we certainly believe and our investors certainly believe that we're, we're on the right path. So the, the space race is well and truly on in Australia I mean I, I don't think there's a day that I don't open up a newsletter and there's something about space, whether it's happening in Australia or US or China. Where is Australia positioned and what's your opinion on China and the US? Like, like how is it all panning out? Yeah, so the, the, the space sector has transformed uh you know we can, we can use any sorts of puns right you know it's it's uh it it, it has launched it is certainly um you know, it's, it's, it's certainly in orbit yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah um it's it's not not quite to infinity and beyond yet but yeah. it has it has achieved an extraordinary measure of of growth and maturity in just the last few years the, um, the agency's founding back in 2017 into 2018 uh, has catalyzed that national effort, although there were, you know, extraordinary individuals and companies uh, in existence many years before that. But yes, we are now seeing that national, I think, integrated effort, and in particular recognition on the world stage that Australia has a has a, uh, a part to play. Uh, the space agency noted some of our key strengths. We have this large continuous landmass that allows us to deploy communications facilities to pick up the signals from space and with the thousands of satellites now being launched essentially yearly with the constellations like Elon Musk, Starlink and others. There's just a lot of data that's being shared around. And that all takes uh, some large amount of, of uh, ground stations. Um, that's one area that Australia has been a leader even since the, well, the, the Apollo mission. We took the signal from the moon 
um, to support NASA the f first step on the moon. The, the dish is a somewhat faithful retelling of that. If you've ever seen it, it is a good movie. It's not exactly yeah. super accurate, but it's great in, to watch um, with the Parks Radio Telescope. Uh, but we, we've been uh, instrumental in, in so many um, uh, international efforts with, with NASA as well as, as ESA and, of course, JAXA, the Japanese space agency, who most recently returned a piece of, of an asteroid uh, and landed here in Australia. So we support our international partners, but in particular, we are now beginning to, I think, have the confidence in our own industry that the Australian space sector has a role to play in not just our own national uh, needs, uh, the development of new satellites with the national space missions, for example, that will $1.16 billion allocated over the uh, uh, coming decade or, or so. So that's that's a wonderful way to grow our own capabilities while delivering the tailored capabilities that we need for Australia versus just using whatever happens to be sent our way by our, our partners. Um, but thank goodness they have been because we, we have not sent up our own satellite uh, uh, for many, many years. So we're very dependent on others. And I think that's what's changed, the recognition that we need to pull our own weight on the international stage, uh, that we have capabilities in uh, potentially in launch uh, with spaceports in the top end, with Equatorial Launch Alliance or the Southern Launch in South Australia or Abbott Point now in Queensland. Um, and of course, with launch providers uh, like Gilmore, uh, who are developing a, a, a small rocket um, to take market share in, in, a, in a very interesting um, uh, part of the launch community. There's the recognition, of course, that it is a national sovereignty question and defense is very keen, I think, to see us grow the, the industrial base to support their resilience. Um, and that, of course, does come down to, you know, what is driving those national security concerns. And there are, are adversaries out there who uh, certainly, I think, are making defense be quite aware of the vulnerability of supply chains. But I actually think the COVID era has would have done a lot of that in any case. I, I think we, we now reflect on how uh, important it is to onshore those critical steps and as, as best as possible make a resilient as well as, of course, ultimately profitable, but but certainly resilience supply chains. And when you consider how dependent we are on space for our everyday lives and communications, the weather forecast, the fact that you use Google Maps to get around places, you know, there's at least three apps you'll open on your smartphone, which will use information from space every single morning. And perhaps most people are unaware of that, but our dependence on space has only grown. And so too wisely, I think our focus on developing those those resilient supply chains and working closely with our our partners in particular of course the us there's mm. long-standing uh, collaboration with nasa there's long-standing bilateral investment uh, in each other's advanced uh, technology sectors and of course space just now is is yet another and we saw that with uh, blackbird ventures the um, very large uh, investment group uh, from the us uh, uh, getting engaged in the Gilmore um, Series C round to, I think from memory, something like $67 million raised or numbers to that effect. So yeah. we're seeing a very significant collaborative engagement with the US in space, not just in defense, but I think most excitingly in the commercial 
uh, sector and it's worth bearing in mind that while defense is is a key market it's it's not actually as big a market as all of the commercial sector put together space is going to be worth about a trillion dollars well by 2040 at the latest now in fact it's probably going to be closer to the mid or early 2030 so most of that is now in the civilian domain and most of the investment is in the civil domain so it's great to see the space sector in australia being competitive globally uh, in that civil domain yeah i suppose like if you if you look at the states of australia like queensland is is known as the robotic state because they just pump so much money in it I mean, if I think of space, typically I would have thought of South Australia as the leader because of just the companies that they are, like uh, uh, Flavia Tata and Ardini's Fleet Space. But I think they raised a massive round of money um, a few months ago. Uh, where else do you think there's really space work going on of note in Australia? Yeah, so definitely the, the states have sharpened their offerings, I think. Um, while we sometimes uh, see that competition as as um, perhaps perhaps negative, I certainly have heard those uh, that 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 thought. I'm actually quite a fan of states being um, uh, competitive with one another to the degree in which they see what their actual value proposition really is, rather than try to do everything. They focus on the things they can do best, and um, and as you've rightly pointed out, South Australia has invested. Uh, tremendously in its space sector. It's supported with innovative tax breaks. The Lot 14 uh, hub has brought a, a number of um, um, companies together as well as, as even proposed its own satellite mission. So I think the other states do need to um, support their, their role in the space uh, sector. Thankfully, it's big enough. Uh, space is huge. Uh, so it is big enough for, for all of us to have a role. I look to uh, Queensland and their focus on uh, launch and the um, uh, and and in particular also hypersonics. We in Victoria are uh, part of a supply chain that was recently established, the Australian Manufacturing Space Network. Uh, Swinburne is the the sole university in in Victoria as a part of that, but we have our close uh, four or five close industry partners, and essentially it is to be a part of that supply chain that ends with a rocket hopefully being launched in Queensland. And I think that's the way in which we grow a sustainable uh, and indeed growing sector is by integrating our capabilities and to do what we do best. And certainly for Victoria, advanced manufacturing, uh, the uh, uh, heritage and communications and data processing, I think are all um, tremendous strengths that we need to see used by the other states and territories if we're to see a national success uh you know we, we could do a quick whistle stop tour of the other states and territories and you know show uh talk to who's doing great work and uh but um without giving anyone else <laughs> you know happy to give plugs to everyone if that's if the <laughs> listeners want to know if you're you know if you're into optical uh, uh, communications or, or space domain awareness check out eos and canberra if you want to uh get into the comms radio comms for example um, WA has done some some incredible work with its um, uh, its its facilities out of uh, um, New Norcia for ESA as one example. But look, we we you know there's many many I think really exciting efforts and innovations. But the key I think as a nation is how do we integrate those together? How do we allow the competition that's been healthy to turn 
uh, now to more a collaborative approach and integrating those sharpened offerings. And I think that we're still not quite there, uh, if I'm honest. I, I think we've still got a few more years, but those big funding announcements, those you know, decade plus visions, that's what drives the integration of, of partners. It takes time to build trust, to build supply chains, to build those kinds of uh, collaborations. Well, a decade plus, that, that gives you enough time. Mm. Yeah, listen, I mean, if we look at what happened during COVID and the competition between states and how the doors are being slammed in each other's faces, mm. I hope it's, I hope that's not happening in this in this arena, you know, like, as you said, competition's good, but eventually it's a national thing and uh, rising tide lifts all ships, like everyone will be benefit from collaboration. Uh, look, I, I, absolutely. And I, I do think that the sector as a whole understands that I think that uh, we just have a, uh, we just still have a, 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 a sector that is still a little um, way from being self-sustaining. And I think there's a bit of a sense of pressure that we still need very large government contracts or, or government support to get international contracts in. And uh, that drives a little bit of, um, you know, beggar thy neighbor approach, perhaps at mm. times. So I, I, I'm concerned that were the um, were government leadership uh, to be found lacking in the next couple of years, that this momentum may may uh, slow down and perhaps even go back. I, I don't think we would necessarily slide now too far. I think we have seen some great foundations built, but I think if we were to to see the Australian space sector meet its targets, which is to be just representative of our share of global GDP, actually, as an advanced economy. You know, we're, we're not being greedy when we say we want to treble the size of the, of the space uh, sector in Australia, an extra 12,000 uh, to, to $12 billion, an extra 20 to 30,000 jobs. That's not being greedy. That's just our share of the global space sector as our percentage of our GDP in the, in the world stage would, would lead us to imagine we could do. I think we can do better, and I think we will. And to do that by 2030 is certainly achievable. But it still needs government leadership, and I think it needs the continuing collegiality that I've seen. And, and it is actually the most fun as a sector. It's uh, Well, maybe robotics. I'm sure robotics is great, too. <laughs> I don't want to say that. <laughs> no, but I do think it's, gonna, it's a very... <laughs> <laughs> not going to start a fist fight here. You can have yes. it. Like, listen, what I think we need is we need smart people in government. So why don't you just make a slight pivot in your career and think about being a politician? Like, I'm sure you can do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not... Look, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I think the... Um, you know, I, I think uh, politicians are... Um, you know, in the main, going in to do good work for their community, for their nation. Uh, they work incredibly hard. I've been very close to government uh, over these last few years. And I could assure you the hours they work and the, the miles they travel is quite incredible. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure to the detriment of their, of, their, of their health, certainly, you know, their families, you know, it, it must cause incredible strain. But they do it for these these 
you know, bigger causes, but I, I just don't have the work ethic at this point in my career to, to do that hard job. Uh, so I think I'll have to pass on your, on your putting me forward. I'm oh my, oh my very generous uh, supporter. Okay, yeah, we'll move yeah. on. <laughs> Tell us about Swinburne's uh, New Space Technology and Industry Institute. Like I've got a whole thing here, but just, just tell us about it. All right. Well, in a, in a nutshell, it, it was established uh, uh, just over a year ago, based, based, however, on many, many years of, of um, work within the uni. Uh, but it is the um, industry aligned, externally facing uh, aspect of our, of our university, where we try to solve companies and communities problems here on Earth through space, and in particular, by matching their problems to the capabilities within the university it can just it's inherently multidisciplinary we we have programs going across developing new materials or manufacturing techniques in particular in added manufacturing um into or, or surface coding engineering um to resolve uh, or, or solve problems for the space sector one can imagine most obviously in rockets but not exclusively we then have uh, programs in Earth observation, so the use of that information from space, the satellites you send up there, uh, to help. Uh, well, in fact, bushfire uh, uh, and vegetation management monitoring. We for very large industries, uh, we have uh, a program called microgravity experimentation, which is now on its fourth year of uh, high school-led designed and constructed experiments that fly to the space station so you know we have all of these uh, uh, you know, wonderful initiatives and they all come together under the institute and in particular the leadership of uh, rebecca allen for the the uh, microgravity experimentation uh, as well as andrew ang and and, and lachlan hyde with uh, surface coating and, and manufacturing efforts those are all i think extraordinary the ones and, and very much based on needs today with industry. Uh, the ones that I think are quite uh, far out there, and I've been just delighted by the the response by by industry and our research organizations like the CSR as well as, as internationally and NASA is uh, in the extraterrestrial resource processing. In other words, you know, mining the moon, uh, led by Jeff Brooks and his team. We have probably more PhDs now enrolled in that aspect than almost any of the other programs because people are trying to see what's next. So we see in Artemis, the return to the moon and beyond by NASA and the first uh, woman and person of color to walk on the moon, hopefully in just the next couple of years. All of that is being built um, to be more sustainable. Uh, these are not one-shot missions, but rather the vision is to to return to the moon and stay and to use the resources of the moon to help that uh, astronauts live on the moon, but of course also to go beyond and, and fuel the mission to Mars. So we're doing some of the foundational work on how do you mine the moon in terms of, of uh, responsibly extracting those resources? How do you make the best use of the materials you bring with you? Let's build a circular economy from the outset. This is gonna be a robotics led uh, endeavor humans will play a role but primarily it's it's going to be robotics and how do we ensure that the things we send up there are robust uh, resilient to the dust how do we send things that can be recycled um, how do we or what do we select to mine and process with that recyclability in mind at the outset and you know these are all the questions that we we get to ask now before we do it and get there in earnest yeah. and lock in decisions 
And in particular, we get a fresh start. We get to do an economy right. And that's what I think is most exciting about Space Endeavor. So while, you know, it's, it, you, you might be, I think maybe the listeners might be surprised to, you know, to hear just how advanced the efforts are in that regard. And it does seem like this crazy far off sci-fi thing, versus, particularly versus the other programs we do at the Institute. Uh, it's the one that I think uh, is, is certainly worthy of our, of our study and considerable uh, research efforts because it allows us to learn from our mistakes on Earth, innovate to do better on the moon and take those learnings back to the earth and, and ultimately to benefit us all here. So I think it's a wonderful uh, institute that my my colleagues have have just shaped and driven through their own uh, passions and visions to something that helps people today on earth, but also ensures that tomorrow is a better future as well. Is the institute open to uh, visitors or tour groups or is it just solely for people working there? Uh, it certainly, we certainly do welcome visitors. Uh, we're spread throughout the university. So it is an all of university approach uh, to this. And really, I think that's, that's one of the secrets to its success that there's, there's really no end of the expertise that we can call on from social sciences, from law. In fact, we just stood up a PhD in responsible AI in space as, as a lot of the decisions get made by AI with no or limited human interaction or human in the loop. So, so we're doing all of those activities. Um, so yeah, so a number of the things you can see, the very large uh, printers, the titanium printing for rocketry, you can see, you know, a large deployable antenna structure and based from carbon polymers that is being done by the CSRO test lab in collaboration um, uh, with, with Swinburne. So, you know, there's a lot to see, but it is spread out. So you'll need to book quite I think a full day to, to get to see all the different projects and speak to all the different people, most importantly, about the work that they do. But hopefully later this year, I'll actually have a, um, uh, a bit more of a, uh, an, an, uh, an institute, all of Institute show and tell for the public uh, online. So there'll be a series of talks and series of, of tours, hopefully. So people will not have to come to Swinburne. Uh, they can just sit in the comfort of their home and, and watch the live stream perhaps. Fabulous. Let me know when you do that and we'll embed it in uh, the show notes of this talk. Um, robots in space. So mm. I was looking at the Mars rover and the little helicopter that accompanied it. And mm -hmm. the previous model was, um, lifespan was two years and I think it's still going now. Is it 11 years later or seven years later, yep. but like a long time after. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I need to know is how, what, where does the battery charge? Like what batteries in this? <laughs> okay. and I, this is yep. the first thing I went, how does this thing just move? Tell me about this. Okay. Well, look, so, uh, the, so the, some of the earlier missions, uh, um, opportunity, for example, is one, uh, were solar powered. So they had little solar panels and they last longer than we expected in part because while well, the dust from the moon would, uh, block the solar panels over time, uh, little um, dust devils would would whip through and clean, literally blow over the top, run straight over the top of the panels and clean them up. So that was quite a surprise, yeah. a fortuitous occurrence. Um, the larger missions, however, need a lot more power than can be provided. So they actually have RTGs, uh, nuclear batteries, essentially. So um, naturally uh, decaying 
uh, isotopes generating heat and the heat directly into electricity. So it's not, not a nuclear plant, it really is just a nuclear uh, battery. And it's the same thing that, for example, has powered the Voyager spacecraft as they've uh, now left the solar system. So these uh, power the um, uh, systems. And in particular, we see things like, of course, there's all the cameras, the radio comms back to, to Earth via relay uh, satellites, but also our um, you know, lasers, uh, because these are laser, the most recent um, in particular perseverance is, you know, a laser armed nuclear powered robot with the yes, a drone <laughs> capability, this quadcopter. Um, yeah. Very cool, very, very yeah. cool stuff. And yeah. um, I think the idea of anything as sophisticated as that operating successfully, as you as you rightly point out, uh, for the earlier missions for years past their design lives, uh, moving for, you know, miles longer than they ever could have dreamed quite literally until the wheels break in some instances. I mean, this is an extraordinary testament to the, the systems engineers and various other specialties within that, that program at NASA, JPL. Uh, but I think also of how uh, visionary they were to build systems that could be resilient, that missions could be redesigned, redeployed after launch. And I think that what we're seeing now with even greater focus on AI uh, is only going to enhance that, that resilience and capability in years to come, where these missions can, to a certain degree, drive themselves, can select or at least prioritize objects of interest. It's, it's very hard to tell what looks like a good target for your laser to shoot at to get the sample and return, hopefully one day return to Earth. Um, and what we're seeing is that that AI is is supporting the humans in that decision-making process. And perhaps in just a generation or two, we're going to see AI just do the mission almost in its entirety and then just send the information back to Earth. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we're not even going to touch on that subject now because they were deviating right off. And um, <laughs> I still want to talk about robotics in space. Now, what happens to all this space junk? This is always of interest oh, yeah. to me that... Um, and we, it's going to collide and there's going to be a huge calamity. How is this being managed? Uh, badly. Yeah. <laughs> In short, a word. Short answer. Yeah. Short answer. So, okay. So this, this, so, uh, so this is an orbit around the, the earth. We see everything, um, you know, from paint flecks from the casings of rockets or satellites to hammers. I think there's a hammer from the International Space Station flip, or maybe even screwdriver flip, you know, slip from an astronaut's hands and then once in orbit stays in orbit until uh, it is buffeted by enough of the tenuous atmosphere at those great distances from the earth to eventually lose enough of its speed to begin to fall back towards the earth and ultimately burn up. Um, we, we have a scenario in which thousands of new pieces of uh, uh, thousands of new satellites are being deployed, um, adding to the congestion up there. Uh, however, and, and to a staggeringly, I think, uh, um, inappropriate, doesn't really quite do justice to it, but um, uh, uh, damaging way, nations have tested their own abilities to destroy satellites, their own satellites in orbit, but to demonstrate to their adversaries that they can, um, Russia and China most recently, uh, which have caused a huge amount of debris to be up there. And that debris, again, just it remains in orbit. Now, the challenge is it's bad enough the debris in its first instance. We then have to track that and get our satellites to move out of the way, and in particular, the International Space Station to try to move out of the way. And it does this, unfortunately, qu quite often, 
all of which burns fuel and shortens the lifetime of these missions. So there's great economic cost even right now. The real danger comes when the junk hits into other uh, uh, satellites and takes them out. Uh, as just, just to put in context, they're moving so fast, um, you know, tens of thousands of kilometers an hour, you know, 7.8 kilometers per second, give or take, that these, even a, a, a screw has, when it uh, uh, impacts an object, has the, the energy equivalent to a hand grenade going off, right? So these, these delicate satellites just get, yeah. get obliterated. They in turn cause more junk and then that will hit other uh, pieces and, and the problem grows and it grows like an avalanche of, of you know, cascade of, of junk being created. And this is known as the Kessler syndrome after Don Kessler, who first wrote about this a few decades back uh, for NASA. Um, he actually believes we've reached this tipping point where once the cascade begins, it can't be stopped, or at least not easily, junk begets more junk. And that's in certain orbits close to the Earth, we may already have reached that tipping point, which is quite, quite a, a profound and sobering point. What that means is you'll have a cloud of shrapnel debris in around the Earth that will take decades to centuries to naturally clean itself up. And we can't have satellites in that orbit. We, in fact, we, we struggle to even fly through it. It becomes a risk um, to reach uh, higher orbits. This would be a, an absolute travesty for humanity to lose access to space just as we've gotten so much value from it and the, and the profound value to come. We think about weather monitoring, disaster monitoring, climate change, monitoring, for goodness sake, is only more important, not less, in these years to come. And we now have our access to it jeopardized. So what can you do about it? Well, you can make sure satellite operators get their satellites out of orbit at the end of their lives. Um, there's, there's issues to that. The, the tendency is to run your satellite for as long as you can, uh, running down its fuel until the last possible moment before you either then use that fuel to, to essentially burn rockets and break and then intentionally burn up safely, of course, or put it into a higher orbit known as a graveyard orbit and get it out of the way. Uh, some operators find at the end of that, that they just don't have any fuel left. They've run it too long and there's no incentive to them really to do anything other than that. Um, so I think one way could be to try to get people to be better custodians of their own satellites in that way. Uh, but there's also just junk up there that needs to be cleaned. So we have defunct satellites, potentially even that have been impacted by space junk already. It's a little hard to tell um, what caused their failure. Uh, ESA has a program of development of, of harpoons, quite literally old school whaling techniques, and a harpoon to fire through from one satellite, shoot, you know, hits another, and then fires its own rockets and drags it back. You can also throw a net over a satellite and do the same process. That, that's okay for the bigger pieces. The smaller pieces, that's just not possible. Uh, and one solution is by EOS in Canberra, I mentioned earlier, who have um, laser uh, uh, adaptive um, star uh, system, uh, sorry, a laser adaptive optic system. Essentially, the laser is fired into space, looks like a star, an artificial star. It's blurry because of the atmosphere, and they change the mirror uh, hundreds of times a second, potentially, to, you know, uh, reconstruct that blurred laser to the point-like laser that we know it should be, and in doing so have corrected for the atmosphere and get a sharper view of the debris behind, uh, essentially as if they were in space themselves and were no longer having the blurring effects of the atmosphere. So wonderful technology techniques. 
Someone rightly points out, though, uh, that if you've now got a laser that's shining in space that's correcting for the atmosphere, why don't you use then a second laser that's more high powered to shoot the junk that you can see? And that's a process that we're trying to to explore. So I, for one, will, will definitely put my hands up to fire that laser to shoot down space junk and slow it down to burn up. So, you know, we're, we're trying, we have to be innovative because the problem is enormous. There are hundreds of thousands of pieces of debris up there that can take out satellites already, right? Already, there are millions of smaller pieces that potentially pose hazards to our astronauts. The chance of an impact that begins to then cascade the sequence of ever more debris beginning ever more degree, that is only growing as we put more satellites up there. And if we were to see this continued um industrialization of low earth orbit certainly the extension of the internet to low earth orbit uh, we we have to do better at cleaning up the junk and we're, we only we only have a limited amount of time to do that but who is enforcing it like you know i, I know what you're saying but if say the us or china leaves a satellite there who's actually going to tell them you have to get this rubbish down and how are you going to punish them if they don't yeah, so this is this is a you know a, a tr the tragedy of the commons, right? So in everyone's best interest for it to be clean, and no one's individual responsibility to do yeah. so. The uh, there are manners in which, for example, U.S. has has imposed better behavior by commercial operators through the FCC, right? So so uh, surprisingly, perhaps. So if you want to be profitable in space, you need almost certainly to involve the US at some way to get the data down or to you know launch or get technology. And that then comes with some regulatory oversight by the US and certainly they've been proactive in that way. One way is the FCC will not give you license to broadcast your signal back to them unless you have a low enough orbit that your satellite will naturally decay in just a few years, um, for example, if something goes wrong. And I think those are those are great initiatives, but we do need to do better. Um, we saw the US pledge to no longer test anti-satellite technology, missiles, and, and I think in the particular announcement. Um, that's a wonderful statement. I would hope uh, that the other nations who have been uh, less um, responsible, shall we say, in previous years, follow suit. Uh, I would greatly hope to see China and Russia also undertake those, those uh, efforts. It's just it is just madness to test those kinds of technologies in orbit when you know that the resulting debris cloud cannot be uh, uh, contained, that you can't ensure that that's not going to go and damage other satellites. It can damage your own. It's, so, it's just such a short-sighted, crazy thing to do in this day and age. And, and I, you know, we, we, we are outraged, and rightly so, by nuclear weapons testing. Uh, we sh we should be equally outraged by these kinds of satellite testing, uh, destructive satellite testing, and I and I think that the U.S. initiative on this is to be applauded, and I hope it's to be followed. It sounds a bit like the genie is out of the bottle. It sounds like mm. the plastic problem we have on Earth. Like, how do we? Like, we all know it's a problem, but you know, short of. So, if I look at what's going on in our oceans and the plastic to be found there, uh, you just look at this and we just doomed by our, mm. yeah. Anyway, look, there's, no, not... there's, look, there's no positive. Look, <laughs> yeah, there's we, no we have positive a, a, sh <laughs> a short window to solve this problem, yeah. and that's the positive. It's mm. not too late. 
and we have uh, companies and, and agencies, uh, national space agencies, as well as research organizations doing incredible things, innovative things to try to resolve it. But I think we actually need a global response and we need to have a sustained response to ensure that we don't see the pollution grow in space. I don't think it's too late. And that's where I'll leave that positive statement. All right. Now, who are your peers in, in, in this world that you orbit in? Oh, there come the puns. Like, what yeah, do you think of, yeah, it's pretty good. What do you think of um, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and they, they, mm. their fight going on? And like, second to that, like, I've always wondered, you know, the earth that we inhabit could use all this money that we're throwing into space um, development, um, looking at everything. What do you okay. say to maybe the money should just be kept on earth and we should just maybe look after the homeless people we have here? Yeah, right. So look, in the first instance, I say the money doesn't leave Earth. Uh, it yeah. stays on Earth, right? It's, yeah. it's you know, high paying <laughs> jobs, a, technology jobs here, yeah. here, in, here yeah. on Earth. Well, it's All important right. to recognize that, right? So, okay, but, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but look, uh, uh, I would say that, that you can do both. You can, you can explore space, you can develop these new uh, companies and offerings and, and, uh, and also resolve homelessness. There's, there's no shortage of money in the world. It just gets you know, allocated to other things. Uh, so that's how I would justify, quite frankly, the, the um, efforts by organizations like NASA in the exploration space. You know, private companies can do whatever they want with their money, right? And the private, private uh, individuals. I would say that there's reasons to be optimistic about these, these efforts by the, you know, the billionaire space race, I think it's been phrased. And, yeah. and that is that by developing these new companies and SpaceX, most notably with reusable rockets, they've done what no one else has, has ever been able to do. And they've driven down the cost of access to space and they've allowed more satellites and in particular Earth observing satellites um, to be launched. And I am a direct beneficiary of that. Uh, as are all of us in Australia, because we now have more satellites providing weather data, mm -hmm. uh, that we have the ability to better monitor our climate, that we have uh, uh, disaster monitoring capabilities that we didn't have before, and certainly can now begin to imagine how we could have more uh, in the years to come as we needed. So the, the space race by these billionaires has driven innovation, it's driven additional funding and new mindsets, and we are all benefiting from that. Now, why I'm, I'm, and I'm still positive also about space tourism for a similar thinking that it just drives economies of scale. So the more people that are trying to get in space, uh, the cheaper access becomes for other things, right? So, you know, when we talk about space tourism, which is what Jeff Bezos in particular is pursuing with Blue Origin and, and, and Richard Branson with Virgin Galactic, um, you know, I'm not going to be a space tourist, right? I'm not rich enough. This is a rich person's game. Let's not make, you know, yeah. costs are coming down. Yeah. Ticket prices will always be about, you know, I would suspect $100,000 uh, to get to orbit. I don't think we'll ever see it get much below that. Um, and that's just the nature of it uh, because it's costly to get space. But in doing so and building up these wonderful new rockets and capabilities, we are seeing the cost come down. And that means cheaper satellites, better satellites getting into space. And that benefits all of us back on Earth. Um, I think that the, uh, the, the I, I still have an outside hope that the, the billionaires, when they turn around, they see the fragility of Earth and they have that, that moment, as so many other astronauts have reported, of, of being a change in perspective of, of understanding the fragility and the one 
planet we all reside on become more environmentally minded? You know, these are military test pilots who came back changed in their time as astronauts. And I hope that perhaps the richest, most powerful of humanity are, are so too in their space tourism. And again, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be positive uh, on that point, but I will be unequivocal that the actual benefits are guaranteed because of the increasing size of the sector and its advanced capabilities that allow other missions of benefit to humanity to be launched and um, those information to be provided to, to us all. That's how we benefit. The other things could happen as well, and that's even more beneficial. Um, but I think if we're gonna if we're gonna address the, for example, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all, all 26 have information from space or access to space as a critical aspect to deliver them, feeding the world, eradicating uh, uh, that global hunger, um, reducing global poverty. Uh, all of these are required by space and the advantage that the space provides. How do we make that more equitable? How do we make access to space more equitable? I think it's a far more profound question to ask than, you know, should we just, you know, is it right that billionaires are spending their own money to, to do these kinds of initiatives? Well, it turns out that they're having benefits for all of us. Now, whether that's what Bezos intends or not, I can't speak for his mindset, um, but certainly I can say that we are benefiting from it. Alan, it's been an absolute delight speaking with you. So interesting. Um, I could probably keep you here for another two hours going down the rabbit hole of other things I want to ask you. So I think definitely a return visit for you. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave the audience with? I would just say that space is no longer uh, a provision for the superpowers or realm for the superpowers. It's between startups uh, and, and certainly the the growth in the sector here in, in Australia in particular is incredibly exciting and it's never too late to translate transition into it. So if you want to know how, if you want to thoughts about even going back to courses, we, you know, we do co-majors and, and other certs now at, at Swinburne and other universities. So the Australian education sector is gearing up to ensure others can make that move into this growing space sector to, to educate those 20, 30,000 uh, people um, uh, uh, that we expect to see the, the roles created for, uh, as well as to support companies in trying to translate their existing product lines into space-worthy capabilities. And that's something that I'm excited about the future of. And if you want to hear more or hear how you could get involved, well, just reach out. So if you haven't uh, connected with Alan on LinkedIn, please uh, correct the error of your way immediately. Um, is that the best way to get hold of you or? LinkedIn is pretty good. Uh, sadly, I'm, I'm always on Twitter. So Astro Duff on Twitter as well. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I'll, I'll respond quickly on it, but probably not, not as information rich as if you just hit me up on LinkedIn, yeah. All right, so there you've got the invite. So connect with Alan there. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and uh, to our audience out there, uh, I hope you find it as insightful as I have and join me again next week for another episode. Mm -hmm.